Well, today we are going to begin a, a new series. Thanks, Dave, for passing those out, and Fred. We're, uh, we're going to begin a new study today on the book of Second Peter. Um, now, you may say, why are we ta- studying Second Peter? Well, because we already studied First Peter. <laughs> we did that actually a few years ago, um, and so probably most of you here uh, maybe weren't even here when, I, when we did the study on First Peter, but um, there is a reason that we want to talk about Second Peter today. And uh, so we're going to be just introducing um, the study. We're not going to be getting into the book today necessarily, but we do have a number of uh, scriptures we want to talk about um, as, we, as we study and begin to study Second um, Peter. And so today we're actually going to be focusing on learning to lead. We're going to be talking. We're going to be talking about the process of how do we learn to lead the way Peter learned to lead. We're going to spend some time getting to know Peter today, and uh, the context of his ministry, the context of his background, and and, and and the better we get to know Peter, the better we get to know the context of his background, the better we're going to understand his teaching. Peter was writing this letter, this second letter to the same people that he wrote his first letter to. However, the context of the lives of the people was changing. The first letter that Peter wrote, he was writing to those scattered throughout Asia Minor. And these were probably people that Peter had first contact with on the day of Pentecost. Um, Remember, at that time, Jews from all over the surrounding territory, from around the world at that known world at that time, had come into Jerusalem. And the day of Pentecost came, and Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, went down and he preached his first Holy Spirit-led message. And as a result, 3,000 people were saved that day. And those people then went home, and they scattered back to the places where they belonged. And so Peter's first letter was to that group of people that he administered to probably and others in the early church. But the first letter, Peter was writing to them to encourage them and to um, protect them against the opposition and the persecution that was coming from, with, from without of the church. The government and for the ungodly leadership was heavy persecution at that time against Christians. And so Peter was writing First Peter to encourage them to be, stand strong and don't give up in the face of external persecution. Now the second letter comes four to five years later or so. Um, and this second letter, however, to the same audience, but we see the context changing now because the persecution and the, the, the temptation that was coming to these people was coming from even a more dangerous position or a place. It was actually coming from inside the church through false teaching and heresy. So now Peter's second letter really is focusing more on to encourage the people to withstand the temptation and the persecution from within the church. Wow. So I think there's a lot of relevance here for us today. I think a lot of the failure that's happening in our culture today is coming from within the church, from within ourselves, even. And so we're going to find that this is going to be very, very applicable to our life. My Bible commentary says this about the purpose of Second Peter. Let me read this little ditty here for you. It says, Peter wrote 
to, number one, encourage believers to diligently pursue godly character and a true knowledge of Christ. And secondly, to expose and denounce the dangerously deceptive activity of false prophets and false teachers among the churches in Asia Minor who were undermining the original truth of Christ's message. He summarizes his purpose as he challenges true believers to be on their guard so that they may not be carried away by the error of lawless men and to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So that was the, that's the intent. That's the purpose. That's where we're going to be going as we continue to talk about Second Peter. There is much to be gleaned from here. We're going to find ourselves just full of good, nourishing, God-inspired food here, spiritual food. But I see an interesting parallel, similar to the same threat that's happening within our country in this. I don't see our country falling to an outside invasion from a hostile country. I can remember as a kid, and maybe even those older than I, the air raids, crawling under the desk because Japan or somebody was attacking. And I can remember being afraid of communist China or communist Russia, that Russia was going to invade the United States. I don't think that's going to happen. I don't think America's going to fall from an outside threat that way. But I think America has a great potential of falling from an inside threat. I think America has great potential because we're falling, because we're slowly falling into immorality and unethical behaviors. And the enemy is working overtime to destroy us from within. What I find is that the hardest enemy to battle against is the unseen enemy, the enemy that we can't see. One that we, the one that is just not uh, visible to our naked eye or to our physical eye. Physically, I think we can look at that as COVID-19. We can't see it. It is so small, we can't see it, but yet it is an enemy, invisible, that can attack from the inside. Spiritually, this relates to the way the enemy attacks because Satan is very subtle in his temptations to us. He comes very quietly most of the time into our lives. He doesn't come roaring in to say, hey, I'm here to destroy you. He comes in through the deceptiveness of quiet deception. It's the little things that are dangerous. I've heard it said it's that what you can't see can't hurt you. Well, that's not true. What you can't see is very dangerous to us because we give us a false sense of security because we seem to be safe, because we, we seem to be in a sleepy little northern Michigan, right? And we are in sleepy little Michigan, northern Michigan. We don't have the hurricanes and the floods and the tornadoes and the earthquakes. And, you know, we just have a little ice and a little snow, and that's about it. So we get pretty sleepy up here. We get pretty comfortable thinking that, oh, nothing bad can happen to us. But the internal temptations, the internal working of the enemy is not limited by geography. He's here, and he's very strong. And I think that's why 
how, that's how individual Christians fall most of the time as well. Not only potentially our country or our churches, but individual as a person. That in individual apostasy or the falling away occurs most of the time very slowly. It occurs one little temptation at a time, one little compromise at a time where we're not diligently protecting our spirit man. We give in to little sins, don't we? We give in to those little things that we think, oh, that can't hurt us. That little thing, that's not bad. That little lie, that little stretching of the truth, that little indulgence, whatever it is, maybe that look on pornography, maybe the drink, maybe the alcohol, maybe the, maybe the drugs, maybe the legal marijuana. I just heard that Oregon just passed the law that they could uh, legally now take on hard drugs, the stuff that will really kill you, <laughs> and they've legalized it. Isn't that sad? But why the quiet or the, the subtle enemy is so powerful and dangerous is that the devil is very deceptive, and he's a very sly enemy, and he understands better than anyone the seriousness of life and death. He understands it. Remember, he left, he was kicked out of a glorious life in heaven. He was the lead angel in heaven. He was the worship angel. He was, he was created by God, and he had a great existence in heaven. However, he gave that up because he pride entered into his life, and he had, an, he had an attempt. He made an overall outward attempt to overthrow God. And with that, God said, nope, not here. And he banished him from heaven, and he kicked him out. But I will tell you that Satan's goal never changed to overthrow God. Even though he's not in the physical heaven anymore, he's here on earth, but his goal has not changed. His intent is still to overthrow God, but it's changing in its way of doing it. His context is changing. His tactics are changing. His greatest desire is to destroy God and to take his place of worship. That's what the devil wants to do. But he found out that he can't do it with an outward attack on God. So his next best strategy is to go an inward attack on God's creation. That's me and you, you and I. That's you and me. I'll say it right. It is the way that God has protected us, but yet the enemy will come in and he will try to get to God's loved, beloved. You and I are loved by God unconditionally. He loves us so much, but the enemy, and the enemy knows that, and the enemy wants to destroy you as his way of getting back at God. So now he works in God's creation, mankind, to deceive us to, so we would follow him and that we would die from the inside out. And he knows that he can't come to most Christians and tempt us with the bad things. I don't think any of us are here are tempted to kill anybody, are we? I, don't, I hope not. If you, if you did, put your guns at the door. Um, but I don't think we're, we're tempted that way. I don't think that we're tempted with the really bad things that are obvious. I think the enemy knows us well enough to, that he goes underground in the unseen areas of our life, when we're all alone in our own little secret life, our own little secret thought life, I think the enemy works the best when he's not seen. And I think that's his strategy. And once a person is trapped in, into that deceptive lifestyle, 
it's really hard to get them out. You know, a person that is deceived, they don't know they're deceived. Do you know that? <laughs> if they knew they were deceived and kept doing it, then they're just plain stupid. <laughs> I mean, to say it for what it is, a person that is deceived, if you're deceived, you probably don't know you're deceived. And if someone comes to tell you that you're deceived, you have an immediate reaction to deny it. Say, I'm not. It's that unseen enemy that the enemy is so clever. And what the enemy will do is, if he can't come at you from an outward attack to destroy you with one big blow, then he'll work you subtly on your foundation of who you are. And he will come slowly into your very essence of being a Christian man or, very, or a Christian woman. And he will slowly chip away at your foundation until it's faulty and weak and that you can't stand up to the life storms. And then when you fall, you blame God. Because don't we typically blame other people when we have faults? When we fall down, I mean, who's the first one do we normally blame? Do we blame ourselves? No, we are in a very serious time. I heard a little story about a little boy that um, was, he just repeatedly got bad grades in school. I mean, always getting failed grades. So his dad talked to him, and uh, his dad said, you know, son, if somebody doesn't get better grades, they're going to get a spanking. So the little boy went to school the next day, and he went up to his teacher, and he said, I don't want to scare you or anything, but my dad said, if I don't get better dra- grades, somebody's going to get a spanking. <laughs> so do you see the little boy, what he was doing? He, was, he wasn't looking at, I got to change my life to get their better grades. Now, who's a teacher? Give me better grades or you're going to get a spanking. <laughs> but isn't that the way we deal with life so many times? That we will put it on somebody else especially in our cancel culture today that we're living in even more. And that's the way the enemy's working. He doesn't want us to see ourselves for bad. He wants us to blame other people. And then he wants us to blame God. Because if we blame God, then we're on our way out with God. And the enemy's dancing then at that point. So the foundation of our faith is very important that we build a strong foundation If we have a strong foundation, then we will have the ability to live through the storms of life. And and when I started to think about that, I asked myself the question, well, how do we protect ourselves then? How do we protect ourselves from that unseen enemy? Well, the way we do that is to pursue the truth of God's word. That we go right to the source. A good offense is a great defense. You talk to a football coach and he'll say the best way to win a game is to keep the other offensive team off the field. Keep my offense on the field and I'll win because as long as my offense is on the field I'm going to score touchdowns and if I keep their offense off the field, in other words if I have a good defense to keep their offense off the field I will probably win the game and that's the way it is with a Christian's life as well. The best defense is a great offense. And how do we have offense? We read the word. We go in and we pray and we study God's word and we're diligent with our study time. Jesus told the parable in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke of how this happens. If you turn to Luke chapter 6, verse 46, 
we're going to read the parable of, of two men, one man that built his house on the solid foundation and one that built his house on the sand. And when the storms came, which house stood and which house fell? Let's read it. Luke chapter 6, verses 46 through 49. Again, this is in a New Living Translation. So Jesus says in his parable, So why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? I will show you what it's like when someone comes to me, listens to my teaching, and then follows it. It is like a person building a house who digs deep and lays the foundation on solid rock. When the floodwaters rise and break against that house, it stands firm because it is well built. But anyone who hears and doesn't obey is like a person who builds a house right on the ground without a foundation. When the floods sweep down against that house, it will collapse into a heap of ruins. So what is Jesus saying here? He's referring to two people that both call him Lord. Two different groups of people, true followers of Christ, who, are, who is, it's proven by their obedience. He says, I will show you what it's like when someone comes to me and listens to my teaching and then follows it. It's not just listening, it's putting it into practice, following it, sitting here in church, getting good Bible teaching, then going out into your workplace and living it out. We talked about last week that the musts of our faith are to know our faith, vote our faith, and then most importantly, live our faith. And that's exactly what Jesus is talking about here. We get good, solid Bible throughout your Bible study, throughout Bible teaching, and then you go follow it, obey it. And then the other person that Jesus is talking about here, again, the same person called him Lord, but they listen, but they don't follow. But anyone who hears and doesn't obey, see, the one who listens and builds the house on a solid foundation based on obedience to God's word, he's able to withstand the storms of life. This parable never says the storms aren't coming. The storms are coming, but are you built on a foundation that can withstand the storms? Jesus never talks about our life being easy. In fact, you're probably going to have more trouble when you're a believer because now you've got an angry enemy that's going to come at you a few different ways because he wants to take you back. He wants to win you back to where you were. So I don't want to mislead you to say that when you become a Christian, life is going to be easy. I don't want to say that. It's going to be good and it's going to be great, but it's going to be hard. So I want you to, I want you to know, I want you to cost, but it's worth it. It's worth it. I mean, promise you it's worth it. So these people that build their foundation, what they're doing is that they're building the foundation where no one sees it. Nobody brags about the foundation of their house. You know, relative to a foundation of a house, to a car man, Tom, you would recognize this, the foundation of a car is not the engine, it's the transmission. And when I was working in the automotive industry, I would call on the Ford, I called on transmission, I called engine plants. And the transmission guys always, they didn't like the engine guys. 
because everybody brags about their engine. Right, Tom? You brag about how big your engine is, how many stroke is it, more stuff I don't know about, but nobody says I've got the best eight-speed transmission in the world. You, You don't brag about your transmission, but without your transmission, your engine wouldn't be any good. Right? So the foundation of life is not something we brag about. We don't brag about our foundation because when we're building it, nobody sees it because you're building it in the quiet time. You're building it in your personal prayer time in your Bible study time. People see the house. They see the color of your shingles. They see the color of your siding, or maybe you have brick or stone siding, not vinyl siding like my house, but you have brick and, you know, really expensive siding. They see that, right? But that doesn't do anything when, if you don't have a strong foundation. If you don't have a good foundation, that nice metal roof you would put on is going to fall, and it's going to be a problem. So the person that has a solid foundation, it takes time and prayer and it takes effort to build the foundation that nobody sees. But it's so important. They take the time to develop the relationship with Jesus. They don't rush through this time. And the storms of life come and because of their solidation, on the word of God, they can withstand them. But the man that doesn't build the foundation. The man that rushes through this and just says, oh, I don't need that. I'm just going to go live in my life and doesn't build a foundation. The same storm, it's not any worse. It's not blowing any harder. The same storm will knock that house down like the three little pigs and a wolf. It's the foundation that is so important that we have to be prepared for that. You know, I read in Matthew chapter 7, if you want to get a little bit more of a warning If you turn to Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 and 23, it says, Not everyone who calls out to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who actually do the will of my Father in heaven will enter. On judgment day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, we prophesied in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform many miracles in your name. But I will reply, I never knew you. Get away from me, you who break God's laws. That is probably the scariest scripture verse for me because I want to be sure that my foundation is built on the word of God so that I don't rush through anything here, that I don't go ahead and do the things that I think everybody sees as really being spiritual only to find out that when I get to heaven, he says, I never knew you, Mike, because you didn't develop a relationship with me. You didn't take my son serious. You just went ahead and did your life. You wanted to look good from the outside. You wanted, to, you wanted to have pretty shingles on your house, but you didn't have a solidation. That's why Peter is writing to these early church members because many there were building their foundation on deception and false teaching from within the church. And how many churches today in America have lost the fervor? have lost the fire, have lost the heart for the Bible. We saw it in that little video that we're going to watch in a couple weeks. The failure starts here at the pulpit because pastors aren't teaching the Word of God. They're teaching the things that are easy for people to hear that makes them feel good because they want to be friends. They don't want to be truth bearers. If you don't like what the mail says, don't blame the mailman. So 
So I feel it's important today that with all the false narratives of everything happening around us, that we need to go back to the foundation of God's word and build on that. No shortcuts. No easy outs here, people. We need to go back to the word of God. Don't be impatient in this process. Don't rush through it thinking I can get to the fun stuff. No, you need to build the foundation before you start building the house. We need to be taught what God says and then follow it so that we're, we, our foundations will support a life amid the turmoil of life no matter what's happening. So do the work. Build the foundation. How do you do that? Come to church. Come to Bible study. Come out on Wednesday nights. Don't be lazy. Don't say, I'm just going to sit home and watch TV and think I'm going to be good. Listen, I'm just telling you, guys, when you have Bible teaching here and you're not taking advantage of it, that's not the pastor's fault. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here. So I'm going to preach to those people <laughs> that are watching online. Come on in, seriously. Come on into the kingdom. Come on into the, to the church where we're supposed to be, where we can honor each other, and we can sharpen each other, and we can do the things that would glorify Jesus together. We can build the foundation together. So now let's talk a little bit more about Peter because this, after all, is about Peter. Peter had a firsthand walk with Jesus. He had a personal relationship with Jesus. Can you imagine that? Oh, man, I would just, I'd love to have been a fly in some of the corners of their houses when they're talking. And Peter had that relationship. But Peter was probably one of Jesus' closest friends. What, a, what an awesome legacy to have. Peter was originally named Simon. Jesus was the one who changed his name to Peter, which meant rock or little stone, because he was going to be a builder of little stones. Peter was a Galilean fisherman and was the brother of Andrew. These brothers were both from the village of Bethsaida. They were both Galileans. Jesus was Galilean. Peter was married, though we don't know much about his marriage nor his family. The Bible doesn't talk too much about his wife or anything about his family. He was also a follower of John the Baptist. We'll come back to that in a minute. But Peter, like all humans, was a sinful man. And why is that important? See, here's the, here's the importance that Jesus, let me give you an example. Jesus was beginning his ministry before he even called the disciples. He's standing on the shore, and he sees Simon out in his boat fishing. So he calls him in and says, Simon, I need to get in your boat because I need to talk to people. I'm going to preach from my boat and I need to get off the shore. So Peter comes in. Simon comes in at the time. Jesus gets in. They go out. Jesus speaks his message. And then he looks to Peter and he says, Peter, let's go fishing. And Peter says, wait, I've been fishing all night, man. And I haven't caught anything. Let me read the story. Luke chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night long, haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. When the power of God is demonstrated... It makes men aware of their brokenness and their sin. 
It's an interesting observation to note that Peter, as a follower of John the Baptist, had some understanding of sin and the need of repentance because that's all what John the Baptist's message was. It was a message of repentance and baptism. So Peter knew enough about it. So we can detect that deduct that Peter probably was even water baptized. He had gone through the outward motions. Yet when Jesus entered Peter's life, he felt the guilt of sin. He felt the guilt of not being in that relationship. And then I got to say, what's so important about this is that that's what so many people like in this world today. They have the outward motions. They have the outward signs, but they don't have the the internal relationship. How many people call themselves Christians yet have no fruit of life that would indicate that they're Christians? And until a person has a personal relationship with Jesus, he doesn't have that understanding of sin and guilt because he just doesn't see it. He's deceived. He doesn't see it. Therefore, he's living his life thinking he's good and thinking everything's grand, but yet he doesn't know because he doesn't have that relationship with Jesus. So when Peter then saw the mercy and the grace of God by filling up his nets. He saw the power of Jesus, and that's when people started to realize something's happening in Peter's life because Peter fell at Jesus' feet, and he said, forgive me. Uh, Get away from me. I'm a sinful man. I, I I can't even deserve to be in your presence because sin was so evident. And I think that's the way the Holy Spirit shows up when God is demonstrated, and I think that's why signs and wonders are important sometimes. Is it, a, is it surprising that sometimes God works in the, in the lives of unbelievers differently than he does in the lives of so-called believers? Because it's when they see the power of God that they're opened up, their eyes are opened. Because see, God isn't looking at the outside of the man. He's looking at the inside of the man. And thankfully he is. Thankfully he's looking at the potential of what the inside of the man is, not what he is on the outside. He's not basing his use of that person based upon that person's past life. He's looking at the potential of the inside of that person. And he's saying, I can use that man. I can use that woman. But I got to have them see the glory of me first. And that's what he does. Because just a couple verses down in that same chapter in Luke, Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be a fisher of men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and they followed Jesus. So Peter was perhaps the first disciple that Jesus called. That probably at that moment, Peter said, I'm going to follow you. And again, that's a whole other message that we have no time to get into about what it meant for Peter to do that, to leave his family, leave his work, and just follow Jesus. That's a whole other message. But this started one of the best relationships that two men can ever have. Jesus, of course, being the perfect mentor, the perfect example, the perfect teacher. And Peter probably being one of the gruffest and the hardest crude man, man of the day and how they developed a relationship. That's pretty awesome. All through Scripture, we see that, that this relationship is being honed and perfected as, as Peter's being gruff and, and speaking his mind without thinking And Jesus had to bring him back in. (laughs) You know, come on, Peter, get behind me, Satan, and all those type of things. And and yet Jesus is knocking off all the rough edges off Peter so that Peter can have a relationship better. Peter's relationship with Jesus changed over time from being a disciple of Jesus to being an apostle. 
This is hugely important for us. And I know I'm running a little bit late on time, but I've got to get through this because this is important. What does it mean to be a disciple? A disciple is a follower of someone. What's it mean to be an apostle? An apostle is one sent out in the form of a leader. So a disciple is a follower, an apostle is a leader. Peter was trained and mentored by Jesus to become one set apart for God and to be one set out. But he had to be a disciple first. He had to come under the authority of Jesus before he could ever be a leader representing Jesus. Before anyone can be an apostle or of the fivefold ministry, one must first be a disciple. One must first be a follower. One can't be a good leader until they learn how to be a good follower. Listen to this. This is huge because we are not, we don't like to be considered a follower. We want to be a leader. We want to be a chief, not an Indian. And I know that's not politically correct, so I'm sorry. But we, we want to be the boss, right? We want to be the boss. We don't want to be the one taking orders. We want to be the, be the, be the one giving the orders. My little granddaughter's that way. She's so funny because she just loves, oh, I'm going to get in a rabbit trail, so I can't go down that path. But being a good follower is the foundation of being a good leader. A good follower develops the required experience and the trust, and he develops trust in the people that he ultimately will be leading. But he'll develop the trust as they see him first being a good follower. A person that learns to follow is a humble person, as a patient person, and he, wants it, and he, and he understands the, the significance of the call that is on his life yet they don't rush into it. They're patient until it comes. I've got to give you an example on this because this is, this is so important that we understand this point, that the person that is a good follower is understanding that it's more about fulfilling the will of the one sending them than fulfilling their own agendas and prideful ambitions by becoming the leader prematurely. Why, it's powerful. Let me give you an example. David. David. Before he was made king, the prophet Samuel was searching for the second king because Saul was failing, had failed. So God put Samuel on a mission to find king number two. (laughs) So he went out into the area around him and he went into David's father's house and we pick it up in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And Samuel says this and Chapters or verses eleven through thirteen. So Samuel asked. So so we asked Jesse, "Are these all the sons you have?" Jesse says, "No, there is still one younger. He's tending the sheep." Samuel said, "Send for him. We will not sit down until he arrives." So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said to Samuel, "Rise up and anoint him. This is the one." So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went on to Ramah. That was it. 
Now, let me make these very important points. Because David was about 15 years old here. He was just a boy. And he didn't become king until he was 30. So what was David doing for 15 years? What was happening in in the life of David from 15 years? He was anointed king by Samuel in front of his brothers, in front of his dad. There was witnesses that you're the king. He's 15 years old. And then Samuel just leaves the picture. He just walks out of their life. So what is David to do? You and I probably would have jumped on and said, okay, I'm king, Go out and, and, and run into uh, the next major town and said, hey, I'm the new king. <laughs> and how would that have gone? But what did David do? David be- stayed a shepherd boy. He went back out and tended the sheep. And out there, what did he do? He killed a bear, killed a lion, protected his father's sheep, was still to his dad, was learning all the time from God, Finally comes along Goliath. He said, hey, I killed a bear. I killed a lion. I can kill this man too by the power of God. So he went out there with his little slingshot and he sling and he killed Goliath. All this time, what is he doing? He's being taught by God. He was a good follower so that he could be the greatest leader Israel ever had. That he could be called the man after God's own heart. Why? Because he started off being a good follower. Man, isn't that powerful? This learning to submit to those in authority is the foundation of respect that grows within those that will become a great leader. It's a pay-it-forward type of a challenge. It's a reaping and sowing. You want to have good people following you? Then be a good follower first. You reap what you sow. You plant corn, you get corn, right? Not only was David learning obedience, but he lived it by his actions. This is how this is, he proved it. He proved his obedience and his patience this way. 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 10. Samuel is, or I'm sorry, David is on the run. Saul is out to kill him. So David has an opportunity to kill Saul in a cave. And this is what David does. This day you have seen with your eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on the Lord, on my Lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. See, David had every opportunity. Paul, or Saul came in to relieve himself or something, fell asleep. I mean, a couple different times, two or three different times he had opportunity to, and every time David wouldn't touch him, cut, the, cut the, his, his order, the, the corner of his robe off at one time and prove the fact that he could have killed him. But David was patient until the Lord said, now is the time. That's what good leaders are. They're patient. They're patient. And that's exactly the principle of sowing and reaping. That's why we have to let this point sink in that that if we're going to be the best leader, we must be the best follower before you start to lead. The pride in men will destroy them before they ever have a chance because it will resist the thought of having to be taught and to be a follower first. And obviously patience. Patience is the key attribute of a good follower to become ever, to become a good leader. Peter, 
obviously was a great follower of Jesus. And Jesus taught him how to be a leader. Peter proved his leadership by being the first preacher under the guidance of the Holy Spirit to give that message that day, in, the day of Pentecost. And 3,000 people were saved that day and added to the church. He was one of the boldest apostles of all. He willingly suffered great persecution, imprisonment, beatings, and, and even rejoiced at the fact that he was worthy to suffer for Jesus. Peter is one of those very special people in the whole world that, that, w- that was gifted to have the opportunity to walk with Jesus. Yet he had the humbleness to be called by God to be an apostle. So with all that established about the life of Peter, this will give us a little bit more of a focus on what he writes to us about as we're going to start talking about next week. And as we start to get into that, so as we conclude today, I, I just want to, Jackie, you can come. We're going to have communion this morning after this, and I know our time's sharp, but we're okay. We're okay. But next week we're going to start the study of this short yet powerful book. We're going to learn to be an effective leader as we're an effective follower. We're going to be careful. We're going to learn that it's, we need to be careful in our Bible study. So let me, let, me enca- let me ask you today. Go home this week and read the Bible. Go home this week and read Second Peter. In fact, read First Peter first. Go ahead and start reading it. Get yourself prepared. Study up on it so when we come next week, you're ready to hear what God is saying to us. Go study it. Read it. Write some notes down. Make sure that I'm preaching right. (laughs) Seriously. Hold me accountable. Don't let me stretch it. Don't let me miss it. If I'm missing a point, talk to me about it. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you today for your word. I thank you, Lord, that you encourage us to build a foundation. Not only are you encouraging us to build it, but you're teaching us how to build it. You're giving us the instructions on how to build it. You're giving us the right way to lay the blocks and to put the mortar in where it's supposed to be and to do the diligent things. And I thank you for your instruction that comes through your word. And I pray, God, that we would be, that we would be patient and that we would be faithful in building a strong foundation so that when the storms of life come, because they're coming, in fact, they're already here, that, God, I pray that we would be able to withstand it and not only withstand it, but we would, be, we would glorify you in the process because of the foundation that we built upon is the Word of God. It's not about man's philosophy. It's about who you are, and that is enough. And so I pray, Father, that you would be glorified. And I pray, Father, that you would just challenge us all today to love more, read more, study more, pray more, develop relationship with you to be more solid. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning, we want to have communion. And I've asked Pastor Rip, because Rip is a pastor. He used to pastor this church. I'm so thankful that Rip and Vicki have come back. And I'm so excited to have you guys with us. But I'm going to ask Pastor Rip to come and give us communion today. Welcome to the table of the Lord. Good to be back here. So many of you don't know who Vicky and I are, are, and, and the things that we have been involved with here, and, and uh, 
we were sent out on a mission for three and a half years, and uh, the Lord has given us a fresh assignment to come back here to stand with Pastor Mike, his wife Chris, and the others that are here. And you know what we do? It's so simple. Whatever your hand finds to do, you do it. And do it for the glory of God and the best you can. It's called serving. When we come together in this time, there's never a time as a, as a body, as the body of Christ, when you come together in communion, there's no other act of righteousness and family that you do than when you are in more unity when you do it than anything else you can do. You can do things and feel such a, such a wonderful unity of the believers and a love and, and the mercy and the grace of God upon us, but there's nothing, nothing, everything pales in comparison to the simple act of coming to the table of the Lord. Common union. Communion. It's deeply profound and wonderfully liberating. And so we come to the table this morning. And uh, I want to, first time being here in a while, I might do things a little differently, but this is so simple. Um, and you just invite them to come forward. I like that. that. Would you stand with me, please? Let's pray. Father, as we come together, the partaking, it's serious because it has eternal impact. And Father, if there's anybody here that doesn't know You and they wish they could partake with us, Lord, that they would just realize they're one prayer of repentance away from joining us. And so, Lord, I pray for that time of deliverance, that time of impact. But, Lord, for those that belong to You, what joy it is to come to the table of the Lord. It's a wonderful time of coming together. Lord, our life is not our own. We were bought with a precious price. We are betrothed. We are engaged to a wedding that's coming in heaven that we just cannot believe. But in the meantime, you said, Lord, you said, remember this until I come. In Jesus' name, I proclaim that very message. Amen. So come to the table. Filled with wonder, awestruck wonder. Your name is power, bread and living water, such a marvelous mystery. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord.
Father, we just worship you today. We are so grateful, so thankful that we're in your presence. Thank you, Lord, for your word that was given today. Thank you for the communion that we had today, the fellowship of your table today. Thank you so much. We just pray, God, that you would be blessed in our lives today as we go out from this place. We just invite you to be with us at all times and in all things and in all seasons of our life. We welcome you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be blessed today. Be blessed as you go.